Today's scripture reading is James 1, 1 through 5. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. This is the Lord of the Lord. Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Will. Well, again, uh, church, good to be with you all uh, this morning. Again, if you're, if you're new, if you're a guest, either with us in person or joining us online, it's, uh, it's a joy and honor to, to be with you as we turn to God's word and to hear from him. So let me, let me take a moment to pray as we continue on. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we believe that you are present with us, that you are in this time speaking to us. And so, Lord, what we ask is that you would grant us the ability to hear and receive, to know and respond to your truth. I thank you for the gift of each person that is present with us, joining us um, in, in the spaces that you have called them, Lord. I pray that you would, by the power of your Spirit, make us a people who know you and who live our lives in such a way, reflecting the power of your love and grace towards us. And so may these words that you have given to us through your servant James form us and shape us as your people. We pray that this time would be honoring to you and edifying to us. We pray in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. I, um, I don't know if I can think of another movie that I find to be simultaneously like awful and awesome all at the same time uh, than the 80s coming-of-age classic, The Goonies. And if you've seen The Goonies, you, you know what I'm talking about. It is, a, it is a classic film. It's terrible. Like, the writing is bad, the acting is bad, the plot is bad. And yet, there's just this kind of strange, endearing, enduring, nostalgic quality uh, that, that compels even 40-year-old men to still want to rewatch it. I, I rewatched it recently, and it still kind of holds up, and it's terrible at the same time. But, but there's this, this great scene. All the scenes are great and classic where my favorite character, Data, he was, he was my favorite character in all the Goonies, uh, there's a scene where they're in the basement of this creepy restaurant, and Data comes across this printing press of some kind. And he quickly discovers it prints $50 bills. And he loses his mind because he thinks this is the solution to the problem that will save their neighborhood from being converted into a country club. And so he flips out, he's trying to share the news with his friends, but as quickly as they discovered the printing press, they realized that it was bogus, it was counterfeit. It printed bills that weren't real. And this would have been the quick and easy solution to their problems, but again, it was counterfeit. And, and, and Data had a hard time accepting this. But his friends moved on. The problem would not have solved, this, this would not have solved their problems because, again, it was counterfeit, inauthentic, and not real. And, and I, I share this experience because I, I think Data's experience with the $50 bills, with this kind of counterfeit printing press, is in some ways a metaphor for how I think James, the New Testament author uh, who wrote, wrote this letter that bears his name, I believe it's a metaphor for how James talks about the distinction between real faith and, and, and a faith that is dead. You see, in, in James's letter, he talks about that there is such a thing as a real faith and also a counterfeit faith. There is a faith that transforms us, and there is a faith that tricks us. There is a faith that brings about life, and there is a faith that keeps us dead. The question is, what is real faith? 
And how do we know when we have it? What does it look like? And where does it come from? Now, these are some questions that I want us together to explore as we spend some time in this new series that we're calling Real Faith. Uh, We're going to be camped out in the New Testament book of James, and so I encourage you to follow along. If you haven't read the book of James, it's an easy read. I encourage you to spend some time in it. But what I want us to see as we journey together this morning is that this is a message that I believe speaks to all of us. Whether you're a committed follower of Jesus or whether you're skeptically curious about the Christian faith, I'm thrilled that we have the opportunity to learn together, to wrestle together, and grow together as we explore what real faith really is. And so this morning, we're focusing our time on James 1, verses 1 through 5. Uh, 5, there we go. Uh, 1 through 5. And what I want us to see is this one idea. If we're going to take one thing from us, I hope it's this. It's that your pastor's still going through puberty. No, just kidding, just kidding. It's this. Is that the path to real faith is both difficult and delightful. The path to real faith is both difficult and delightful. And so so I want to look at our passage, but but in order to do so, I think it's important to give some context. We're in a new book, and so when we jump into a new book, it's good to know who the author is, the context, the circumstance, the occasion of this letter. And so James, the author of this book, uh, most scholars agree, is is probably, most likely, the half-brother of Jesus which is a remarkable thing in and of itself. I mean, it's, it's one thing to convince skeptics and your enemies that you were the son of God. It's an entirely different thing to convince your own brother that you were the son of God. I, I don't say that tongue-in-cheek. Like That's absolutely no small piece of evidence for the trustworthiness and the truth claims of Jesus, that his own brother recognizes him as the Messiah, as the son of God. Now, James is writing to a collection of Jewish Christians uh, who have been kind of displaced. They're in the, the, the dispersion. That's the word described in James. And they are, they are centered outside of Israel, somewhere near the eastern region of the Mediterranean basin, which is modern-day Syria. And so these Christians, these Jewish Christians have been displaced, most likely because of some kind of persecution and oppression of some kind, and they now find themselves in a very unfamiliar territory, away from their home, everything is not familiar to them. And so it's, it's a result of some form of oppression. And so, so just to kind of even give a, a co- contemporary comparison, uh, think of uh, the, the situation they're in. It's not that dissimilar from the refugees fleeing Afghanistan, seeking some kind of refuge as a result of the oppression they've experienced. Or you think of of certain immigrant families coming through our southern border seeking asylum because of oppression in their country. They've been displaced, finding some place to have respite and refuge. I think these modern-day examples are, are a helpful contemporary comparison of what is happening and going on in the life of James's readers, these Jewish Christians in the dispersion. Now, to kind of uh, help us understand who these people are, some of them are absolutely in need of encouragement uh, because of the situation they're in, but, but some of them also are in need of being equipped and challenged because they're embracing a faith that isn't authentic, it isn't real, it's a counterfeit faith because there's no evidence of the fact that, that their faith in Jesus has actually transformed and changed their lives. And James is writing to make clear to them what real faith really is, what it looks like. And so to connect this to kind of our, our modern moment and where we find ourselves as a church, I think there are some of us that think of faith almost entirely in the category of difficult. Faith is nothing more than just religious chores. All it is is cost. It is only difficult. 
But then there are some of us who would kind of be on the flip side, that we uh, associate faith with God's promises to make our lives happy and healthy. And that the, the, the life of real faith is a life void of adversity and difficulty and hardship. And if you're facing those things, you really don't have a strong enough faith. Both of these types of people will be severely disappointed about what real faith really is. Because real faith, when we see in James's letter, it is a path that is forged through difficulty and delight. That what we see in James as he explains what real faith is, it is filled with hardship as well as happiness. It is marked by sacrifice as well as satisfaction. And James makes this crystal clear for us in the opening verses of his famous letter. I want to read verses 2 and 3 again for us. James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now notice that James uses the word when and not if. When it comes to the Christian life, a life of genuine, sincere, real faith, the reality of adversity is not a question of if, but a question of when. Hardships will come. The Christian life is not impervious to adversity, cost, pain, and difficulty. The question is, do we live our lives in such a way expecting difficulties and trials, and do we have a proper response to them when they arise? But maybe for you, the word trial isn't the word that you're hung up on. Like, I I get that. Like, life is difficult, and as a follower of Jesus, there are unique challenges and costs. But maybe for you, the word that is difficult to swallow is the word joy. How are trials joyful? How are we we to consider trials to be a thing that is received with joy? And and I want to be very clear here. James, James is not forbidding all emotions other than joy when we go through times of trials. I want to make that very clear. He is not forbidding emotions like sadness or, or frustration or disappointment or anger even. But rather what he is saying is that when we face trials, we should consider it, count it, all joy. In fact, that phrase, all joy, I think it's better translated as pure joy. Pure joy. James is not saying that joy should be the only emotion we feel in times of hardship, but rather that that phrase, all joy, like I said, is better translated as pure joy. He's saying that pure joy is to be found in these moments as well, along with other emotions. But the question is, what kind of joy is James talking about? It's, it's not this kind of counterfeit joy of this hollow happiness that's built on these like pithy platitudes that try to uh, inoculate us and kind of numb the pain of life, but rather the joy that James is talking about is this kind of settled contentment, this steady trust in the fact that God is present with us in our circumstances and is infinitely wise in the midst of our trials. Now, it should, it should also be said that James, James is not commanding joy. He's not saying, you must rejoice, you must be joyful in these times, but rather, because this word that we see in verse 2, count it all joy, or some translations say, consider it all joy, that is not an emotion word, it's a thought word. And so what James is saying when he's talking about how we should count it joy in trials, the command isn't to be joyful or to delight in suffering, rather it is focused on how one should think and how one should view the circumstances they are in. James is saying that the real faith that we are seeking after is not forged by changing one's position, but one's perspective. 
We, we, are, not, uh, we are not formed and find joy by, by having our position in the trial changed, being taken out of it, but rather our perspective changed in the midst of the trial. There's this old Middle Eastern folktale that kind of illustrates this idea of, of understanding our perspective in the midst of difficulty. It goes like this. A man's horse ran away. His neighbor came to him and said, bad luck that your horse has run away. And the man said, what do I know of these things? But a week later, the horse came back with 20 wild horses in his wake. And the neighbor said, good luck, you now have many more horses. And the man said, what do I know about it? Trying to tame one of the new horses, the man's son was kicked and his leg was broken. The neighbor said, bad luck, your son's leg being broken. And the man said, what do I know about good luck and bad luck? A few days later, a bunch of thugs came by in search of able-bodied young men for their gang, and they were about to kidnap the man's son. But when they found out that his leg was broken, they left him behind and moved on to the next house. And the neighbor said, what good luck that your son's leg is broken. The, The point of this story is to show how limited our perspective is of our circumstances, and particularly our adverse circumstances. When we see things through the narrow lens we, we have a hard time understanding how any of this could be used for our good and for the glory of God. It seems pointless from our vantage point, but, but part of what real faith is, is being able to declare and admit that God, while we don't see through the wide-angle lens, God does. Part of real faith is saying, while from my vantage point, this trial seems absurd and unnecessary, I trust that God sees all, desires my good, and is at work in the midst of this difficult circumstance. This is how we can find joy in the midst of even difficult pain and hardship. Because trials are not hurdles in the way of real faith, but rather they are the irreplaceable pathway to the life that we long to live and for the life that God is forging in us. Which is why James, right after talking about having joy in trials, says these words in verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. You see, trials are not arbitrary adversities that we face in life. Rather, they are tests that serve as opportunities for refinement. Again, it's not about changing our position in our trials, but our perspective. But when we hear the word test... We may have a very negative connotation of the word test. We may think of something you have to do in order to enter somewhere or to receive something, like an entrance exam of some kind. And James is not saying to his Christian readers that, hey, you have to pass this test in order to be accepted by God and in order to receive real faith. That's not what James is saying. Rather, what he's describing, the testing that James is talking about is less like an entrance exam that we take in order to enter somewhere And it's more like a medical exam that reveals something that is going on inside of us. An entrance exam is what you take in order to get inside somewhere. A medical exam reveals what is inside you already. That's the idea of the testing that James is speaking about. God doesn't test us in order to accept us. Rather, God tests us to help us see how much we have accepted his acceptance of us. I'm going to say that again. God does not test us to accept us. Rather, God tests us so so that we might see how much we have accepted his acceptance of us. In this way, the tests, the trials we go through are for our good. It's the difference between running a race to qualify for the Olympics 
and running a race in the Olympics. Are you tracking with me? Like, like in order to go to the Olympics, in order to be considered an Olympian, you have to compete in the Olympic trials. But once you're an Olympian, the races that you compete in while in the Olympics, it doesn't change your status as an Olympian. You are an Olympian. That the races in the Olympics determine what kind of Olympian you are. Does that make sense? Are you tracking with me? That's the difference here. The testing that James is talking about is not a testing that makes us believers, but rather reveals the degree to which we have come to believe the promises of God. If you are a follower of Jesus, the trials and hardships of life that God sends your way are not qualifying trials to get God to accept you. Rather, they are necessary opportunities for you and for me to see what we actually believe, what we actually think about who God is and the promises he has made to us. The test is not for God to find out what we think of him. The test is for us to find out what we think of him. But even in saying that, some of you might be sitting here, okay, okay, I get that, I kind of understand that conceptually, but wh- why does God need me to go through challenges and hardships in order to grow and to flourish and to have some kind of, of wholeness in life? And I've, I've asked those, those same questions. But all of us, we, we all know this truth intuitively, that hardships and challenges, difficulties in life are, are precisely the things that form us and shape us. They're precisely the things that make us stronger, more resilient people who can endure. There's a reason why the most mature, wise, joyful people in your life are typically the people who have endured some of the greatest hardships in life. And that's not a coincidence. The idea that a life of faith in God is a life free of difficulty is not just unbiblical, it's actually impossible. Because the way in which we grow, the way in which we are formed, it is through the pathway of difficulty, not around it. Think, think of it this way. They're, think of your the human muscles, okay? How, how do muscles grow? I asked Megan to take a picture of my arm the other day. And um, <laughs> why are you laughing? Um, think about how muscles grow. Muscles grow by being torn. You tear your muscles so that they can be rebuilt and stronger. And that may sound painful, but that is the only way that you can have muscles grow. They must be torn down. And while, again, that may seem less desirable, we have to be reminded that the the path to growth and the path to real faith is both difficult and delightful. Muscles either grow by being torn through exercise or they atrophy through a life of ease void of any challenge. Those are the options. Muscles don't say stagnant. We may think that we want a life of ease and comfort void of any difficulty, but a life free of trials, a life free of hardship is a life of lethargy. It is a life of inactivity that leads to the muscles of our soul falling into atrophy. And again, when I say this, I don't don't say this to minimize any of the challenges that we are going through or have gone through, but we all know intuitively that the strongest muscles are formed through the greatest of tension. That the brightest diamonds are forged through the greatest of pressures. That the finest of wines ferment for the longest amount of time. That the sweetest flowers bloom from the stinkiest of manure. As we, as we learned last week, that the, the most resonant violins come from the trees that have been weather-worn the most. 
And the realest faith, the realest faith is found in the greatest of trials. James wants us to see this truth. He's not just giving us bad news. He's helping us understand and reframe our perspective of how hardships come to us. And he makes this clear for us in verse 4 by revealing the design and the intention of trials in our life. Look with me at verse 4. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Do you see how James is linking trials to our wholeness? Trials are a means of testing us and refining us. Again, not to get God to accept us, but so that we might understand and accept the depth of God's acceptance towards us. And this refining process of our faith produces steadfastness, or or some translations will say endurance. And the goal of steadfastness is wholeness, is a life of complete integration. That that phrase in verse 4, perfect and complete, it's less about crossing a finish line, like arriving at your destination, and it's more about describing the, the, the kind of, of faithful person we are becoming through enduring trials. That phrase, perfect and complete, it really means maturing wholeness. That's the idea. It's not about crossing a finish line and arriving, but it's about a process. Listen to how theologians Miriam Kamel and Craig Blomberg describe this in their commentary on James. They say this, This word, referring to perfect and complete, summarizes what a Christian should become, stressing the incremental character of the process in which perfection is not just a maturing of character, but a rounding out as more and more parts of the righteous character are added. This is the process. The testing of trials produces steadfastness that leads to a wholeness of life that we all long for. But when we give up in our trials... Or when we fail to see that God is at work in our trials to form us and shape us, we can find ourselves growing cynical and weak. Let me me illustrate it one, one other way. We can either see trials in our life as a still frame image or as a part of a time lapse video. If you think about, imagine an artist who's creating a sculpture out of marble stone. And if you're unaware of the final product that this artist is creating, and you only have this image to go on, you might conclude, like, this does not look good. A a piece of stone that's been now cracked, it has been irreparably altered, it's marred. What good can come from this? This is an unfortunate circumstance. But, what if this image is just a tiny part of a time-lapse video, documenting the arduous, incremental, long-lasting, difficult process of chipping and chiseling, sanding and shaping, polishing and presenting a slab of broken marble so that it could become something beautiful? What if instead of seeing a broken piece of stone, it's a process producing a work of art? What first looks like a regrettable mistake or a frustrating circumstance actually turns out to be a necessary part of the process in making something beautiful. That's the picture of what God is doing in our lives through our trials. He brings trials to us and allows us to endure them, to make something beautiful of us. God is making us a people of real faith who face difficulty with delight, who face hardship with hope, 
and who face every trial that comes our way with trust. But again, as I say that, that, that's helpful theological religious jargon that may be a sense of encouragement to some of you. But I also know that there are some of us who are sitting here and just thinking that it just sounds far too fetched. Too far-fetched, rather. You have a hard time getting your mind wrapped around this idea that why on earth, how could anybody possibly see difficulty, hardship, adversity, and cost as a joyful opportunity? And maybe you're wondering how, how that could be true of your life. How could we ever see this as a joyful path to wholeness? And I get it. But the answer to that question is found in what James offers us, perhaps very disappointingly, but true nonetheless in what, in what he says in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. James doesn't offer tips on how to avoid trials. He doesn't offer a, a seven-step process on how to minimize difficulty in your life. Rather, he offers us the option of going to God and asking for wisdom to endure the trials we are in. And the goal is steadfastness. And the goal of steadfastness is wholeness. The need for and the ability to seek wisdom, particularly in the midst of trials and hardship, is a key indicator that there is a real faith at work within us. The need for and the ability to seek wisdom in times of hardship is a key indicator that real faith is at work within us. And this may be incredibly disappointing to many of us, but when it comes to the trials in our lives, God's goal isn't to guard us from them or to get us out of them, but to grow us through them. I want to say that one more time. When it comes to the trials in our life, God's goal and design is not to guard us from them or to simply get us out of them, but to grow us through them. And that means the thing that we need most in our trials is not rescue, it's wisdom. And so friends, do you want to know, like, and, and again, we're going to explore more of this in James, but do you want to know what real faith looks like? In the opening verses of this great letter, James makes it crystal clear for us. It is not the totality of what real faith is, but real faith is no less than this. Asking God for wisdom in our trials is a mark of real faith. Asking God for wisdom in our trials is a mark of real faith. When we encounter trials and respond to them by asking God for wisdom, we see real, real faith at work in our lives. Because to do so, in asking wisdom from God in the midst of trials, it requires a humility that says, I cannot do this on my own. It requires a dependence that says, God, I need you in this very moment. If you don't enter in, I don't know what will come of this. Asking for wisdom in trials, it requires a sense of, of trust that says, God will provide everything that I need. And it also brings with it a joy that says, God is with me and will never leave me. Some of you know the truth of, of, of this real faith all too well. You've lived life long enough to experience and taste and see the goodness of what the difficulty of trials does in forming us and shaping us into a people who are steadfast and whole. But I know that for some of us, we're in the midst of this trial. 
Yes, for those of you who have kind of come through this, you wouldn't, you wouldn't exchange what you went through because it was vital for forming you into who you are. You don't want to relive what you went through, but you wouldn't exchange it because it played a vital part in making you who you are. But even as I say that, some of us are smack dab in the middle of a trial. And it's hard for us to see how any good could come of this because you know what? It's a lot easier to see the hand of God in the midst of our trials through the rear view mirror than it is through the windshield. You track with me? When we can look back and see how God is at work, that's one thing. But when we're in the midst of it, when the trial is in our, in our field of vision, that's a much more difficult thing. And so while I don't know exactly what you are going through, or the trials you are facing, or how God is specifically using them to form you and shape you, I do know this. That if our God, who James describes as the giver of all good gifts, most notably the giving of his own son so that we might be freed and forgiven, chosen and cherished and dearly loved, we can trust that he will give us everything we need to endure trials so that we might come out as a people who are more steadfast, more faithful, more whole as a result of this process. Friends, trials indeed will come. I don't, there's no two ways about it. And while I don't want to minimize anything that any of you have gone through or are going through or will go through, as someone once said, when it comes to trials and hardships, we're either entering into one, we're in one, or coming out of one. But what I do know is that when we place our faith in Christ, there is an assurance that God, in his infinite wisdom, knows what is best for us. In his infinite love, desires what is best for us, and his infinite power is capable of accomplishing what is best for us. And he will not allow the trials and hardships of our life to simply be the end of our story. He is using them to form us and shape us. The path to real faith is difficult and delightful. May God grant us wisdom to be a people of real faith. Amen? And to that end, what I'd like to do is is to pray. I I want us to pray together. I want us to be a people who do seek wisdom in times of trials and hardships. Because again, I know that many of us are going through hardships and difficulties right now. And so as a church, I want to lead us in a time of corporate prayer, not just for for us as individuals, but, but let us pray for each other. Because as we come here, we don't just come with our own burdens and hardships. We come with an opportunity to be a blessing to others. And so I want to lead us in a time of prayer. And and the prompts will be on the screen. I will lead us in the portion that says leader. And together we'll pray the portions that say all together. So let us take a moment to pray to the Lord, asking wisdom. Father, you are the giver of all good gifts. And in light of who you have been and who you are now, we come to you seeking wisdom for ourselves and for one another as we face trials of many kinds. For those facing the trials of physical and mental health, O God who gives generously, give us wisdom. For those facing the trials of relational discord and division, O God who gives generously, give us wisdom. For those facing the trials of vocational change or job loss, O God who gives generously, give us wisdom. For those facing the trials of doubt and uncertainty, O God, who gives generously, give us wisdom. For those facing the trials of seeing loved ones go through trials, O God, who gives generously, give us wisdom. For those facing the trials of loneliness and isolation, O God, who gives generously, give us wisdom. 
for those facing the trials of being bullied and picked on. O God, who gives generously, give us wisdom. For those facing the trials of personal failure or disappointment, O God, who gives generously, give us wisdom. For those facing the trials of grieving the loss of someone or something, O God, who gives generously, give us wisdom. And for those facing the trials that can't even be named or understood, O God, who gives generously, give us wisdom. As we pray for ourselves and for one another through these trials, we submit everything to the will of him who taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.